Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the brooch on America's Bible camisole. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org. Hey, I'm mixing it up, okay? (laughs) Or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Hello, everyone. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Greetings. So, uh, guys, it's a, it's a big week for us because this is our 33rd episode, which makes us now officially as old as Jesus. So that's, uh, that's big news, I think, and we're ready to be crucified. Uh, hopefully our last year of... Is, and that could be like his last year, so. Yeah, yeah. Our, our big year, you know, ending with a big finish. Word's still out. <laughs> They're throwing a party for us at a garden. That sounds smashing, a garden party. Oh, yeah. Um, and But also, uh, this Thursday, the 12th of February, is that right? Yeah. It's, it's the 12th? Thursday, February 12th is the 200th anniversary of the birth of my personal hero, Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin. And Abraham Lincoln. And Abra- and, and Abraham is it the same Lincoln. day? Uh, yes. Also, yeah. also a worthy of being a personal hero as well. 200 years for, for both of these uh, fine gentlemen. And this year also is the 150th anniversary of the publication of On the Origin of Species. 1859. Yeah. So this, was a, this is a big year for those of us who celebrate Darwin Day. But sadly... Uh, even in the land of Charles Darwin's birth, it looks like he's causing controversy. That's correct. The Telegraph in the UK has an article out, Poll Reveals Public Doubts Over Charles Darwin's Theory of Evolution. The article says more than half of the public believes that the theory of evolution cannot explain the full complexity of life on Earth, and a designer must have lent a hand. It also says one in three believe that God created the world within the past 10,000 years. One in three? That's, that's correct. Wow. The question was, God created the world sometime in the past 10,000 years. 32% agreed with that statement. A- this is in the U.K., we expect that sort of thing uh, over here in America. Right. Sadly. Yes. I was shocked at that because usually the polls you see that only have small pockets of creationism anywhere outside the United States, maybe some in Australia and UK, but I didn't think the figures were going to be that high for the UK. That's a new new news to me because I really thought, you know, secular Europe was kind of on board with science and that sort of thing. And And these are the people who gave us Charles Darwin. Probably something we've exported by we, I mean, America has exported mm. to Great Britain um, because of the close ties of our cultures. It's an obvious place to spread. And I know a lot of evangelical Christians over here, uh, I often hear them talking about Europe as a mission field. Nice. Yeah. Well, investing their energy in Europe and, and Australia, where we also have a lot of listeners. And uh, so they're actively right. trying to export these bogus ideas over there. We don't just give England good things like the American language or right uh, democracy. Well, one potentially good thing is that I think a lot of scientists now agree that they were slow to combat this threat. A lot of people felt that creationism wasn't going to catch on and that by engaging these people in debate and by uh, taking the time to even refute their claims, it would be giving them false legitimacy. Right. If we take them too seriously. Right. Yeah. Uh, because it's playing into their teach the controversy strategy now nowadays is how how we would say that. Right. Of course, these these ideas are going to get a life of their own, and if they're not aggressively challenged from the start, you know, it's going to gain more of a foothold. Maybe the UK is in a better position to kind of stem the tide of creationism earlier because they do have so many science advocates. Right. Well, of, of Dawkins. Course, yes, Dawkins is is certainly a big one. 
Of, of course, it goes the other way, too. This article from The Telegraph also reports about Michael Reese, a biologist and Anglican clerk, as the article says, was forced to resign as the Royal Society's Director of Education after suggesting that creationism should be discussed in lessons not, quote, as a misconception, but as a worldview. As a worldview, which, by the way, worldviews don't really matter in science class. I think that's one of the uh, uh, the, the tactics they try here, too, is that the discussion yeah. of creationism, the Bible should be st- not in science classes, but start in things like philosophy or whatever. Sure. So you could have, I don't know how that would work. You have, you're instructed of the facts of evolution in biology, and then you walk over to your class in philosophy in here. But, but this you know, is what people believe. This is what people, re- yeah, this is... Uh, the yeah. worldview of the creationists. So. And I'm all for classes on the, you know, Bible as literature, if they can be taught as the Bible is literature, you know, because as a English major, I believe this is a very important piece of literature, and it's we can't overlook the the significance of this book on the literary world. But uh, it's such an easy little foothold for these people to get in um, and start preaching. Yeah, yeah. Michael Reese's argument was uh, when he was speaking to the British Association Festival of Science at the University of Liverpool, he estimated that one in 10 children was from a family which supported a creationist rather than an evolutionary viewpoint. He said his experience had led him to believe it was more effective to include discussion about creationism alongside scientific theories rather than simply giving the impression that such children were wrong. But they are. Well, yeah. As a strategy, might there be something to at least mentioning creationism as a way to, you know, not completely alienate people in the class, and then perhaps you can talk about evolution then? I mean, is there any legitimacy to that at all in your minds? I would, I mean, because having taken... um, science classes in high school where they would talk about the geocentric view of the universe. You know, historically, people believed that the Earth was the center of the universe. Now we know that's not true. I think that's about all the credit creationism deserves in the science classroom. I I will say I think that's a very instructive way of teaching, though. I I remember my uh, physical sciences course in college, and I was was still a believer at that point. Mm Mm-hmm. Going about the history of the autumn, the models of the atom and uh, oh, sure. talking about the Ptolemaic perspective of the universe and, and how the planets rotated and everything, using that as a setup for what people believed right. and, and then showing how the evidence would chip away at that and you'd replace it with a, with a better, more scientific foundation. I don't know. It was It was very instructive for me. It really helped me to see science as not just a bunch of facts that are truth from from the textbook, but rather a process of discovery and a way of thinking about the world. Well, and I think I think that's very important because as a student, college student, high school student, or whatever, you're coming into this information much the way it was originally found. The Greeks believed that atoms were the smallest unit uh, of anything, you know. And then as science advances, we find out more and more. And I think that's the approach we need to take to teaching this. Start out at Here's historically where we began, or the earth is flat, okay? Here's how we started to figure out that it wasn't. Because early pre-scientific thinking is based on observation, right? Mm -hmm. The earth looks flat. It doesn't look like we're standing on a ball. Maybe we should talk about Paley and uh, the watchmaker arguments and everything uh, preceding Darwin uh, or even even Lamarckian evolution as Mm -hmm. as to try to show, hey, look, there are different ways of thinking about that. This is why science rejects them nowadays. And this is how that that theory has developed over time. This is the evidence. And I think that's um, now having worked in public school system and all of that, I'm not sure how much faith I have in a lot of science teachers to do that. Yeah. You know, and and that's the problem. I think... Especially since uh, creationists are trying to actively recruit a new generation and and steer them into 
positions in biology classrooms and right. and that sort of thing. It, it matters who teaches them. I, that's going to sound arrogant, but I wouldn't trust other people, for example, to teach uh, often just to teach the bring up Bible classes or bring up that because it's not uh, like Dave said. It's observation, but it's also though like basic critical thinking of especially the 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 the, the keystones. I think are falsifiability right. and mm-hmm. and Occam's razor. Yeah. Uh, to this, because otherwise you could gather facts and say, well, it could be, uh, you know, this flagella could be intended by God to be this way or like the eye right. is so perfect. But then when you you have to then bring up not just observing a bunch of facts, but what's the simplest explanation for this that requires the fewest assumptions? Sure. And is this hypothesis then falsifiable? If it's, you know, and and those are the ones I think that strike more than just gathering random empirical data. What's most destructive to non-materialist worldviews is is parsimony and, and, and also falsifiable. Joining us on the show today is Ed Brayton. Ed Brayton is the author of the popular science blogs Dispatches from the Culture Wars. He's also a fellow for the Center for Independent Media, and he's been on the show before talking about the ACLU. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, Ed Brayton. Thanks, Jeremy. Now, Ed, you also have your own radio show and podcast now. Right. Declaring Independence. Tell us about what what is Declaring Independence all about, what type of show is it, and uh, what kind of viewpoints are you trying to get across? Well, Declaring Independence is named that because, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a fellow with the Center for Independent Media. And and what we do is, uh, with CIM, is, is, is we try to expand the voices being heard in the traditional media focus on stories that the, the mainstream media doesn't cover very well, doesn't cover at all, or in some cases, you know, doesn't cover particularly well or in any depth. And starting the radio show is sort of a way to extend that into, you know, new media. Um, and so typically on the show, I have two interviews per show typically, and the first one is usually someone from the Center for Independent Media, and we have state groups set up, six different states around, around uh, the country and, and Washington, D.C., and, and I typically will bring a reporter on the show from one of those groups and, and, and talk about a story that they've been working on and been following. You know, for example, the, we have a show, one of our groups in Minnesota, um, the Minnesota Independent, and the very first show that we did, we had on one of the reporters from there who had been following the Al Franken, Norm Coleman recount. Mm-hmm. He had actually been in the room as some of the ballots were recounted. And so we got to sort of get a, a bird's eye view of what was going on there. And that's the sort of thing that we're trying to do with it is, is really focus on some of these important, you know, hot stories and get into the, to the real details of them. Um, and so we do that with our first interview. And then the second interview is typically somewhat of my choice. And, and, and it's just issues that I happen to feel really strongly about. Um, and so, I, you know, I'll bring on usually someone that I know or someone whose, you know, work I'm familiar with. And we'll bring them in the show and we'll really talk about, about some of those issues that I feel passionate about, like science and religion, uh, like church and state issues, um, like human rights issues and so forth. You focus a lot on on law and politics on declaring independence, but one of the things I've really enjoyed about listening so far is is that you uh, you don't shy away from from skepticism. You don't shy away from criticizing, for example, the Pope, uh, which which might not go over well with a lot of listeners, but. Uh, but you seem to be an equal opportunity critic, and uh, and religion is not off grounds for you. No, in fact, it's 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 something that I I find more interesting than most things. I mean, uh, you know, the, the subtitle of my blog is, is "Thoughts from the Interface of Science, Religion, Law, and Culture," and I'm particularly fascinated by issues where those things come together, and so issues like church and state law. Uh, like evolution and creationism and stem cell research and, and things like that, those issues where all of those uh, of those uh, subjects sort of come together into one um, are, are issues that particularly fascinate me. And so, yeah, I, I talk about religion a lot. I'm, one of the features that I do in the show is is called the wingnut of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and that won't necessarily be a religious wingnut, but, you know, given my sort of focus of uh, having made fun of the religious right for a very long time, that frequently is going to be, you know, the kind of people that we're sort of targeting and picking on for, for their more absurd uh, actions and ideas. And then, as you mentioned, we've twice now, the Pope has won the Wing Note of the Week Award. He's been pretty busy here the last few weeks. Um, and, uh, and I've been busy uh, mocking him for it, so, which I certainly intend to continue doing. Have you got any flack or, or negative response to the fact that maybe somebody's listening to hear the independent media angle 
um, and then they hear a criticism of the Pope or, or something religious. Do, do you get any criticism for that from your listeners? I haven't so far, and I suspect it's because we don't have a lot of listeners who didn't already know what to expect. Yeah. I mean, I think most of the listeners at this point, and we're only seven weeks into this and we're on a small AM station, um, most of our listeners at this point are people who came probably from my blog, people who are longtime readers of my blog, um, you know, who, who knew what to expect. I mean, this is, it's not significantly different. It's a, you know, a verbal form of what I've already been doing on my blog in written form. So they already know what to expect. I don't think I'll get complaints from them. As the audience expands, as we get people who you know, just sort of stumble on it on the radio or, you know, read about it in the newspaper and go, wow, let's listen to that show, then I do expect we'll probably anger a few people. And, and that's okay. In fact, I think it's probably a good thing. You know, if you aren't, if you aren't angering somebody about it, you know, if you're taking a political viewpoint and you're not angering somebody, you're not saying we sometimes at Reasonable Doubts get kind of the opposite problem, which is um, we feel free talking about religious issues. However, people get upset when we mention politics. They feel that you know all, all types of talk about political issues should be neutral in the skeptical world. And, and our argument in response to that is to say kind of what you just said, you know, really religion does intersect very important areas of our culture, including law, including politics. And if you're going to really talk about religion, you can't, you can't hold back on talking about those issues. One thing I've liked about Declaring Independence and your blog is that you're actually very hard for me to categorize politically. I'll hear you say something that sounds like a very liberal position, and then I'll hear you switch to the conservative side. And, and you know, uh, it's, it's hard sometimes to figure you out, Ed. Well, I think that's a good thing. Um, I, I, and, you know, I consider myself, I call myself a, a left libertarian. And, and, and that it, it provokes, you know, all sorts of responses from people to consider that. But it's really not that unusual. I mean, Marcos Melitzas from the Daily Coast website, one of the most prominent liberal voices, um, he considers himself the same thing. He's coined the phrase libertarian. Um, and, 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 one of the things I've tried to do for quite some time is to convince uh, liberals that that there is an awful lot of libertarianism that they would agree with. Mm-hmm. There's common ground there. That doesn't mean that, and I'm not a doctrinaire libertarian. There are areas where I definitely disagree. I don't think that the market solves every problem. You know, I don't. Right. I don't think that that's sort of the mystical and magical answer to every problem. You know, there are some some areas where the market not only doesn't solve the problems, but it causes problems, and it has to be regulated to some degree. And so I'm not a doctrinaire libertarian by any means, particularly when it comes to economic issues. But, but I think there are ideas there that are really valuable. But, but part of what that gets me is I think I am as – I mean, I don't think anybody is, is completely immune to partisanship. But because I don't tend to vote for either of the two major parties and because I tend to come from a, uh, from a little bit different perspective, I, I'm perfectly open to, to, to slamming both parties when mm-hmm. I think that they deserve it. My thing has always been this. I am, my commitment is to principles. Mm-hmm. My allegiance is to a set of ideals. And when you violate those ideals, I'm going to criticize you. And I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Um, it just makes no difference to me. One of those, one of those principles that I, I really respect you for defending in, in all contexts is, is free speech and the, the right of people to, to express their opinions no matter how controversial on any type of subject. Now, uh, it's Darwin Day, and so we've been discussing a lot of evolution-related themes on the show, and, and that's one of the arguments that creationists are nowadays making is that uh, they are asking for critical thinking, free speech, that they, their argument is, why don't we get time to share our viewpoints? Um, and so I was wondering, what, what is your take on that? Well, of course, it's, it's, it's a silly argument. Um, first of all, free speech is, is, is a legal concept. No one is preventing creationists from advocating their positions. They, they can write op-ed pieces, they can give speeches and seminars, and they do, and they can advocate their position, and no one's going to stop them. That is an entirely separate question from what are we going to teach in public schools? Teachers don't have free speech to teach whatever they want. You know, they, they can't uh, get up in math class and say, you know, I don't think two plus two does equal four. I think it equals four and a half. You know, we don't get, you know, that, that's, it's an entirely different situation than we're talking about when we're talking about free speech. And then they have intentionally conflated those two um, issues in, in order to sort of strike the martyr pose. We're being victimized. We're being persecuted, you know, uh, which is simply nonsense. Science is not law. They are different disciplines. And if you want to make your case in science, 
there is a perfectly good process to go through to do that. Uh, and what you have to do is um, come up with a hypothesis that's testable, derive the testable hypotheses from it, and go about testing them. And this is something that the creationists and the, ID, the intelligent design people have entirely failed to do. And in fact, um, in, in, in the few cases where they have attempted to test their ideas, they, they've ended up failing them and then just going on to pretend that they didn't fail or even even to pretend that they succeeded. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a recent interview with, uh, uh, with uh, Ken Miller, and I think you're going to play that interview. But part of it that I really wanted to go after in that, and, and I took advantage of the fact that Ken is such a, does such a great job of explaining mm-hmm. these complex scientific issues in the way that a layman can understand, to take a look at a paper that was written by Michael Behe, one of the probably the most prominent, you know, intelligent design advocate around. Uh, a study that he did, a computer simulation that he did to, to test his ideas about irreducible complexity, and it completely failed the test. Yeah. And yet, they have still, this is 2004, five years later, they're still claiming that it supports them when, in fact, it doesn't. The test was, was an absolute abysmal failure for them. It proved the exact opposite of what they tried to prove, and it did that despite the fact that they went to enormous lengths to make sure it didn't do that. <laughs> Uh, Come on, Ed. Uh, peer review. Peer review is tough. You have to actually uh, verify your results. You have to have others scrutinize them, and and then they need to be tested. I mean, that's that's a whole lot of effort. Why not just strong arm the courts into uh, dictating that your position be taught? Um, and you uh, witnessed some of the attempts of the of the creationists, uh, the intelligent design proponents, to do that. Correct? Yeah. Well, we. Um, uh you're referring probably to the Dover trial, 2005, mm-hmm. a very now famous uh, federal court case um, that looked at the question of whether intelligent design could be taught in a public school science classroom or not, and the judge concluded that it, it can't, that intelligent design is nothing more than old-fashioned creation science, which was ruled out of the courts in the 80s, ruled out of the schools in the 80s by the courts. It was just old-fashioned creation science, you know, wrapped up under a new name. I, I like to use the biblical metaphor, it's an old wine poured into a new skin, <laughs> um, just for irony's sake. Um, and, and, and that's what the court concluded, and, and, and they were correct to do so. And, and yeah, I was, I was involved in the trial way behind the scenes. Nick Matsky, who at the time worked for the National Center for Science Education, and they were the main consultants in the case, his job was to educate the attorneys, you know, who didn't have science backgrounds, and really bring them up to speed uh, and help them, you know, and consult with them in terms of how to attack the arguments from the other side that their expert witnesses were making. And he put together a team of people, um, you know, 15 or 20 people probably, uh, and, and all of whom were given access to the expert reports as they came in and the depositions uh, as they were taken and so forth. And our job was to then go through them and make suggestions of, okay, here's a weakness in his argument. This is the way you want to question him on the witness stand. And then Nick would take all of those suggestions and go to the attorneys and sort of, you know, here's some science, some ideas on how we're going to go about att- attacking this under cross-examination. And, um, uh, and Nick was just did such a brilliant job in the trial, um, and so did the attorneys. And it was a slam dunk. I mean, it was it was absolutely the, the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Washington Generals in terms of, of, of legal teams. Um, and, and it was a, a complete smashing victory for, for science and reason. And unfortunately, it was never appealed. The school board ended up getting voted out, and it was never – so they, it didn't – the new school board, you know, just dropped the policy and didn't try to appeal it to defend it. So it didn't go to a higher court where it would be more – applicable, you know, in, in a larger context. But uh, but it certainly, we've already seen that it has served as a, uh, a blueprint for um, other courts and for legislatures to look at and say, you know, anytime intelligent design then comes up and someone suggests it, they can look at that ruling and say, we better not do this uh, because the courts are going to knock us down on this. Well, unfortunately, what it may be settled in the courts isn't always settled in the court of popular opinion. And of course, Creationist arguments are uh, are not stopping, uh, and show no sign of of doing so anytime soon. But luckily, we have people like you, and we have people like Ken Miller, who was mentioned, uh, who are still fighting that good fight, still bringing this to the public and trying to educate them. So I'm really glad that Ed Brayton has agreed to share with us uh, on the Reasonable Doubts podcast an interview that he did with Ken Miller. Ken Miller is a evolutionary biologist and a uh, very strong critic of intelligent design and creationist movements, and you had a fantastic interview, which we're going to play. So 
I recommend to all of our listeners that uh, if you enjoy this interview you're about to hear, definitely do check out Declaring Independence at Brayton's uh, radio show and podcast. It's on iTunes. And uh, um, what? where's the website that they can get your podcast? It's at declaringindependenceradio.com. And you can go there. You can listen to the latest podcast right there on the front page. There's a little a podcast player. You can then link to the, the archives of all the previous shows. So you can listen to the seven shows we've done so far. Um, and I really do think this interview is a great example of what I try to do in the show of really getting into things in depth and having the interviews be as much a conversation as they are just a sort of dry list of questions. I try to have that give and take with the guest and, and, and we really spent, you know, it's been about 40, 45 minutes really digging into the details of these things. And that's the kind of sort of thoroughness that I'm going for in this. You know, I, I love the show for that reason. Um, it, it's one of those that I, every single one I've listened to so far, you just bring a very deep knowledge of law and other principles, and, and I learn something new every time. Well, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, you are the producer of the show. So, so you may be a little <laughs> bit biased in this regard. Ed, we I, think it, I think the, the result does sort of stand for itself. <laughs> Ed, you weren't supposed to let people know that we were connected in any sort of way. Yes, well, I'm very proud to produce the show, Ed, and uh, um, do check it out. He has some great guests. Uh, Ian Hersey Ali, he scored that interview instead of us on Reasonable Doubts. And uh, and uh, Ed Kagan, you interviewed Ed Kagan, which was a wonderful interview. Uh, I think people who like this show, although declaring independence is quite different, I think, uh, I think listeners who like this show are going to love yours as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Ed, and, uh, and good luck to all your efforts. Great. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, it is a real honor and a pleasure for me to introduce uh, Ken Miller, who's going to be with us for the rest of the hour. I've been involved in the evolution creationism battle for about 20 years, and, and I can't think of anyone who has done more to both protect and improve science education in this country than Ken Miller. Dr. Miller is a professor of cell biology at Brown University. He's the author of several biology textbooks for all age levels, and in my opinion, the most eloquent defender and advocate that evolution has in this country. Ken, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure. Uh, you have a new book out uh, called Only a Theory, Evolution and the Battle for America's Soul. Uh, and it's a book that I got to read during my recent vacation. And uh, before we get into the substance of the book, uh, I want to bust your chops for a minute over something you said in the preface. Are, are you ready for that? Sure, ready to go. Fire away. In the preface to the book, you talk about your work as an expert witness in the Dover trial, uh, which I was involved in you know, well behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, and you say that uh, you said in there that you remain in awe of the legal talents of, of Vic Walchek, Eric Rothschild, and Steve Harvey, and rightfully so. They did an absolutely brilliant job in the case. And then you say you were honored to join with your fellow expert witnesses, Barbara Forrest, Jack Haught, Kevin Padian, and Brian Alters in that trial, leaving out my good friend and the co-founder of Michigan Citizens for Science, Robert Pennock. Where's the love for Rob? <laughs> that was, that was uh, an incredibly careless omission. Um, and the book, is, the book is coming out uh, in one more printing and hardcover, and it's also coming out uh, in about two months in paperback. And trust me, Rob will be there in his rightful place. And I don't have any idea uh, how his name slipped my mind. He did absolutely wonderful work in the trial. Fair enough. And he's done great work on this issue for, for a long time, uh, as have you. In all seriousness now, I want to spend a fair amount of time talking particularly about the views of Michael Behe, uh, who's one of the most prominent advocates of intelligent design in this country. And we're getting a little technical, and I'm going to rely on the fact that you are you do such a terrific job of explaining these technical issues in a way that the layman can understand. As we said when we got together before the trial of plot strategy, if you can explain it to a lawyer, you can explain it to anyone. Right. So I'll give it a shot. Uh, Behe is author of, of two books advocating the idea of irreducible complexity. Give my listeners a basic overview of what that phrase means as used by Dr. Behe. Well, let, let, let's start out with something that, that everybody agrees on, and that is that the living cell is filled with what you might call complicated multi-part protein machines. There's no question about that. So, for example, uh, one of the most complicated of these is a little machine that cells have by the thousands called the ribosome. And the ribosome is like a little factory that helps to manufacture proteins. And it itself, depends on the species, it itself is made of anywhere from 80 to 100 proteins and several very critical pieces of RNA. Um, there are also 
biochemical machines that do things like clot our bloodstream. Um, there are uh, uh, biochemical motors, literally motor proteins, that produce movement. Um, and one of the most famous of these, and Dr. Behe's favorite for sure, is a, a, a cool little rotary engine that whips around the flagella of bacteria, and we usually just call it the bacterial flagellum. And all of these are composed of multiple parts. The bacterial flagellum, depending upon species, uh, anywhere between 30 and 40 different proteins. So here's the argument. Behe says that each of these machines is irreducibly complex. Now think about that. It means you can't reduce its complexity. And here's what he means by that. His idea is that the individual parts of these machines simply have no uses on their own. They're only workable when all the parts are put together. It's sort of like you know, a very complicated machine with a lot of gears, and if you leave even one gear out, the darn thing doesn't work. So you have to put in, in the flagellum part number 28, nothing happens. Part number 29, nothing happens. All of a sudden, you put in part number 30, and whoosh, the thing whirls to life. Now, what Dr. Behe says is, first of all, that's the way things are. And secondly, since that's true, none of these complicated, irreducibly complex systems could have been produced by evolution. And the reason they couldn't have been produced by evolution, according to him, is because evolution can only fashion a few proteins at a time. And, and I would say, yeah, that's pretty much true. And since none of these proteins has any function, according to him, until the entire machine is assembled, it's not like a cell can say, well, I'm going to evo uh, evolve the first 20 parts of this 30-part machine, knowing that 10 million years from now, I'll get part number 21 and then part number 22, and finally something will happen. Evolution doesn't have foresight. That's certainly true. So the existence of these irreducibly complex systems, by Behe's argument, is proof that they weren't made by evolution. Now, if they weren't made by evolution, how'd they get there? Now, he actually has no positive evidence for that. He admits that. But he takes that as an argument for intelligent design. He says if they didn't evolve, then they must have been put there by some sort of intelligent power that was able to assemble all of these parts, put them all together, and get them working. So that's the essence of this argument from irreducible complexity. And at first glance, it's a pretty strong argument. It sounds terrific. Yeah, I think to the layman it sounds very compelling. And I want to go through some of the aspects of, of his testimony during the Dover trial because uh, I think this is going to be very revealing for what it says about the ID movement and about the validity of his arguments. Sure. One of the things that jumped out at me uh, in the transcript of his testimony was that um, he didn't partic appear particularly interested in testing those ideas himself. Um, and I'm going to read just a bit of this testimony. Uh, you know, he, he was asked whether his concept of irreducible complexity were testable. He said, yes, they were. And then Eric Rothschild asked him, but you don't do those tests. And here's his answer. Well, I think someone who thought an idea was incorrect, such as intelligent design, would be motivated to try to falsify that. And certainly there have been several people who have tried to do exactly that. And I myself would prefer to spend time in what I would consider to be more fruitful endeavors. Isn't this the exact opposite of the approach a real scientist would take? If you'd come up with what you considered to be a revolutionary idea, an idea so powerful that it would overthrow one of the most well-accepted ideas in all of science, wouldn't you want to do all the research you can on it and do those tests yourself? Of course, of course. And, you know, one of the, you know, one of the, 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 the most important things that any scientist can do is to generate a testable idea. Um, even if ideas are wrong, if they're testable and you learn something as a result of the test, they still move science forward. And it's, it's almost an axiom. It certainly is something that my research advisor told me when I was working for my Ph.D., and that is if you come up with a provocative and testable idea, test it yourself before anybody else gets a chance, because then proving your, in, in proving yourself wrong, there's no dishonor. Um, and that was the key thing. But, but here's the thing. It's not, and it's not just that Dr. Behe hasn't tested his idea. Because, you know, he may say, look, I'm a theor theoretician. I'm going to spin out provocative ideas so that other people can test them. But the important thing here is the entire intelligent design movement is simply devoid of any move towards experimental testing. Um, they just don't do that. But what they're involved in is the construction of arguments against evolution and then public relations and political lobbying. And that tells you right away that the main goal that they have isn't scientific, it's political, it's cultural, and in fact, it's even religious. 
Yeah, and this is something that's going to be a thread through this whole conversation, I'm sure. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that, that, that his, the incuriosity in this regard is caused by the fact that the few times they have attempted to do any actual scientific research on this, it's, it's, it's ended up backfiring on them. And I want to look in some detail at the paper that, that, that Dr. Behe wrote with David Snoke in the journal Protein Science in 2004, which I'm sure you're quite familiar with. Yep. Uh, on the witness stand, uh, Behe said that this paper argued for the irreducible complexity of things such as complex protein binding sites. Give us a brief non-technical explanation of what a protein binding site is and what this paper purported to show about it. Well, proteins are these wonderful, flexible molecules that can do all sorts of things chemically and that really make life possible. And the way in which you build a protein is you snap together a series of subunits. Um, these subunits are called amino acids. There are about 20 of them found in living cells. So you can snap them together in all sorts of configurations. But unlike, you know, little, uh, uh, little pop beads that you might snap together, as you do this with proteins, they fold. And they fold into many cases very intricate three-dimensional structures. Now, a protein by itself can often uh, carry out chemical reactions and so forth, but what proteins in the cell more often than not do is they attach to other proteins. So they form larger structures that can do more complicated things biochemically and can even do things like generate motion, pump molecules in and out of the cell, and so forth. So the ability to bind to anything, certainly to another protein, is absolutely essential. And what the, the, the Snokes and Behe paper was, was simply a computer simulation. It wasn't any experiments. And what they did in the computer simulation is they said, well, let's suppose that we have a very minimal binding site, a binding site, let's say, uh, consisting of maybe just two of these amino acids. Um, now, it turns out that genetically, in, 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 in the language of DNA, it takes three letters, three different letters, in the DNA code to specify an amino acid. So to have a binding site that has just two amino acids, you have to get six letters of that code right. Well, what they argued is that the odds against doing this are astronomical. And they basically ran some calculations. And they said that to produce a single binding site would take something on the order of 10 to the 8th power cells, and 10 to the 8th power is 100 million, um, about 10 to the 6th or 10 to the 7 years, which is a million or 10 million years. And therefore, it would be virtually impossible. And therefore, the binding sites we do see in living cells, and there are lots and lots of them, couldn't have evolved, it takes too long, um, but must, in fact, um, have been produced by a designer. So that's the argument in the paper. But as you may know, and as you might be going to next, Eric Rothschild, our attorney, opened that paper and then started to ask Dr. Behe a few questions. Yes, and that's exactly where I'm going with this, because in fact, this paper, I think, and, and I think you know, most educated people think, actually argues against irreducible complexity. Oh, I think it does, too. Um, it, one of, what it concluded was that, that that particular complex binding site, according to their simulation, could evolve it, with, with a population of one billion organisms, and we're basically talking bacteria here, uh, right. approximately. Uh, it was a computer simulation, but that's approximately what it would be the equivalent of. Um, that with a, given a population of a billion bacteria, that that binding site could evolve in about 20,000 years, which bacteria have been here for 3.7 billion years. That's a blink of an eye. Yes. Right. Now, not only did the conclusion reach the opposite, but under cross-examination, as you alluded to, uh, Eric Rothschild did an absolutely brilliant job of, of, of essentially making Behe admit that they had rigged the experiment to make it as unlikely as possible that such a site would evolve. And they did this by rigging the parameters to make it very different from real-world real conditions. And they did this in several ways. First, by allowing only point mutations to occur. Right. Now, now point mutations... Yeah, yeah, point mutations are very important as a source of variation, but there are lots of other sources, aren't there? Yes. Now, a point mutation, for the benefit of your listeners, is, remember how I said that there are three DNA letters, three DNA bases, required to specify an amino acid. A point mutation is a spontaneous change in one of those, and it occurs at a single point, which is why we call it a point mutation. And these happen every generation in a frequency of about one in a million or perhaps one in ten million bases, depending upon species. But that was the only way in their simulation that they allowed things to vary. And 
in the real world, what happens is pieces of DNA are swapped back and forth. There are sexual processes in bacteria that slip code back and forth, that transpose them around. There's a process called genetic recombination, and they specifically ruled all of these out of their experiments. In other words, they tried to make it as difficult as possible for their simulated evolution to do anything. Right. Now, the second way that they rigged this experiment was by using a population size of only 10 to the 8th uh, organisms, or, right. like I said, about 100 million organisms. To the average uh, layperson, 100 million, boy, that sounds like a lot. And, 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 and I, I, I have to say, since I wasn't in the courtroom that day, I can't remember if Eric brought this up or not, but in preparing to cross-examine Dr. Behe, um, I sent Eric a copy of a paper in Science Magazine that had estimated the number of bacteria in one cubic meter, w w roughly one cubic yard of soil. And it turned out to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to the 18th. So what that meant is that in a cubic meter of soil, are there um, uh, 10, to the, uh, 10 to the 8th, 100 million bacteria? The answer is there are, but there's 100 million, million times 100 million bacteria in just one yard of soil. We don't even have a, a word for... 10 followed by 18 zeros, I don't think. <laughs> no, we don't. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's the second way, is they used a population size that was far too small. Now, the third way that they rigged this experiment was mm -hmm. by, uh, by setting a parameter that said that none of the mutations in the intermediate steps could be right. selectable. That is, they could confer no survival advantage whatsoever. But, again, in the real world, a given mutation might very well help a protein bind just a little bit better than it did before, can't mm -hmm. it? Yes, absolutely. And, and this, is, this is the way in which intelligent design argues, which is they will take a system that is working now, whether it is the bacterial flagellum or the proteins that clot our blood or their little protein binding site, and they will assume, quite at variance with the facts, they will assume that every part of that system has to be assembled before it has any selective advantage, in other words, before it's useful to the organism. And the reality of protein evolution is that it's not an all-or-none thing. You can produce binding sites that stick a little bit, binding sites that stick pretty well, and binding sites that hold proteins together very, very tightly. So they, again, were completely unrealistic in this assumption that you had to assemble everything before you had any selective advantage. So let's put all this together, and here's what I think this says. What that study really shows is that if you assume a population of bacteria on the entire Earth that is multiple orders of magnitude less than the number of bacteria in a single cubic meter of soil. And if you assume that it undergoes only point mutations, and if you rule out recombination, transposition, insertion, deletion, uh, frame shift mutations, and all of the other documented sources of mutation and genetic variation, and if you assume that none of the intermediate steps would serve any function that might help them be preserved, then it would take 20,000 years, or approximately one 195,000th of the time bacteria have been on the Earth, for this supposedly irreducibly complex trait to evolve. The very definition of an irreducible complex system, according to Behe, to, to, to develop and then be fixed in a population. Doesn't this study disprove irreducible complexity? Well, I think it does, and actually there's an even, I think, better way to put, uh, the de uh, to put the conclusion that you just did, and that is if you take realistic numbers of bacteria, then you can do a calculation, and I did this using Behe's own numbers, showing that in a cubic meter of soil, a protein binding site of the sort that they demand would evolve once every 30 minutes wow. and would keep evolving. So that's the extent to which they had stacked the deck to try to prove their, their conclusion. And frankly, when you have to stack the deck that much, it shows that your argument simply doesn't hold scientific water. Well, even worse, when you go to the trouble of stacking the deck that much and you still don't and reach the conclusion that right. you want, right? It's one thing to play with marked cards. It's another thing to play with marked cards and lose. <laughs> right. Now, during the Dover trial, uh, Dr. Behe pulled out a, a phrase that was new to me, one that I don't remember uh, seeing in his previous writings. He claimed that we know a system is designed if that system shows a, quote, purposeful arrangement of parts. Mm. And he said that we would know when a given arrangement of parts was purposeful if those parts are, quote, ordered to perform some function. But in fact, Dr. Behe accepts that many systems that contain multiple parts that are ordered to perform a function did evolve. For example, he's admitted that the antifreeze proteins in Arctic fish evolved on their own without any intelligent designer having to intervene. Correct. Explain to our audience how such proteins evolved and why this should be a perfect example of the evolution of an irreducibly complex system. 
Well, first of all, his criteria about a purposeful arrangement of parts, how do you know if arrangement of parts is purposeful? In other words, he's basically saying, I'll know it when I see it. Um, um, I don't know of a scientific test for purposeful. So, you know, that's really the first point on this. The, the, the Arctic antifreeze uh, proteins are extraordinary. There are, um, uh, despite the fact that the, the Arctic and the Antarctic oceans are several degrees below freezing. In other words, the temperature of the, of the oceans are well below zero degrees Celsius. And if your listeners will wonder, wait a minute, doesn't water freeze at that level? The answer is no, because there's a lot of salt in it, and that depresses the freezing point. Nonetheless, if you or I, or for that matter, a tropical fish, were dropped into the Antarctic Ocean, our blood would freeze solid in a matter of a few minutes. But this doesn't happen to the fish that live down there. Well, the answer is why not? Well, the reason for that is they make a kind of protein that sort of serves the same function that ethylene glycol does in the antifreeze in your car. It depresses the freezing point in the bloodstream. And this enables their blood to remain liquid well below zero degrees Celsius and keeps them alive. Now, the interesting thing about this protein um, is in the last 10 years or so, molecular biologists have tried to take a look at it, see where it came from. And it turns out that it is a modified version of a digestive enzyme, a protease, a protein-cutting enzyme, that first of all was mistargeted to the bloodstream, and then secondly had accumulated a whole series of mutations. And these mutations turn out to increase the binding affinity for water of the, of the protein. Why is that important? The way in which you depress the freezing point, in other words, the way in which antifreeze works, is in fact by binding water. So we had a perfectly good explanation in pure evolutionary terms for the mistargeting of this protein to the blood and the accumulation of mutations that made it a more effective antifreeze protein. And then here's the really cool part about all this. By comparing the sequence of this protein to uh, fish related to this one, which still live in warm waters, it was possible to estimate how many years, roughly, it took for the proteins that we see today in Antarctic and Arctic fishes to evolve. And the answer turned out to be for Antarctic fishes about five or six million years. Why is that important? It's important because geologists will tell you that it was about five or six million years ago that the continent of Antarctica, which used to be a warm weather continent, there's a lot of fossils in Antarctica actually, that's when the climate changed in Antarctica and it dropped to the temperature it is today. So you have this wonder, wonderful convergence of a story from biochemistry, molecular biology, and ultimately from geology and Earth history. And what's important here is that, that Behe has admitted, he accepts that this system evolved on its own, didn't need any designer to intervene. And yet this is a system that requires multiple mutations, multiple parts working together to all make it work. Yeah, I mean, he can hardly do otherwise than admit that this must have evolved because the evidence is ultimately so clear-cut. I should point out, however, that lots of other people in the intelligent design movement will still not admit that this protein, which gave these fish a new capability after all, they will still not admit that this protein is the product of evolution. And they'll say, you haven't shown that this could happen in the laboratory, you haven't reproduced the steps, you don't know every single mutation on the way there. Here's the question that I've always wanted to ask Behe. If you now accept that the various antifreeze protein systems evolved without the intervention of a designer because we now have well-documented and reasoned explanations for how they developed, couldn't you have made the very same argument you make about the flagellum or the blood clotting cascade before we had those well-documented explanations that you now accept? And if that's the case, as it clearly is, and the inference to a designer from a lack of evolutionary explanation turned out to be false in that case, why shouldn't we think it's false in this case? Isn't that a classic God-of-the-gaps argument? Isn't, well, this, isn't this a science stopper? Well, first of all, it is a God-of-the-gaps argument, and it is a science stopper. Um, I thought one of the best lines of, of the trial was given by Kevin Padian uh, when he was on the witness stand. He's a paleontologist from the University of California, Berkeley. And at the end of the trial, he was asked by one of our attorneys, what's your real objection to teaching intelligent design in the schools? And his answer was, it makes kids stupid. And, and, and what he meant by that is it basically tells them, you know, if, if you're confronted by an example like the antifreeze proteins in this fish, in these fish, it tells you, well, that it, that's the way they were designed. Stop thinking. Stop investigating. And that would be a terrible message to send young science students. But I do have to tell you what Behe would say 
if you asked him the question that you just wondered about, is he would say, that's the subject of my new book. He has a book that came out last year, a year before actually, called The Edge of Evolution. And what he would argue is that evolution can change things up to a point, up to a level of complexity. That's what he calls the edge. But beyond that, evolution just can't go. And beyond that, you need intelligent design. So he would probably say, you know, you're right, Ed, but the antifreeze protein is just right at the edge. That's at the limit of what natural processes can achieve. And I've detected that, and I've made arguments as to why that's the edge. Anything beyond that requires the intervention of my designer. So he'd find a way out of it. But uh, for any of your listeners who are interested, um, that book by B, The Edge of Evolution, had the misfortune uh, to be reviewed in Science Magazine by the distinguished evolutionary biologist from Wisconsin, Sean Carroll. It had the misfortune to be reviewed in Nature by me. And it had the very great misfortune to be reviewed in the New York Times, in the New York Review of Books by Richard Dawkins. And I think, needless to say, all three of us took his book apart, dismembered it on scientific grounds, and all of us gave it very, very bad reviews. Well, and it's not a coincidence that what he thinks is just beyond the evolution, and I think this is the point I was trying to make, the things that are just beyond the point, the edge of evolution, that you know, the, the power of evolution to create, are, of course, those systems for which we haven't worked out a completely detailed explanation for yet. Yeah, in a way he's saying, well, if we haven't figured it out yet, we probably never will. Right, and that's um, the and, science and, and stuff. That's, that's, that, yeah, that's right. That's a way of saying, hey, we figured out everything we're going to. Let's take, let, let's take a nap. And, that, and again, that's, that's just not the way science is done. Uh, I'd like to change subjects a bit, and I'll go to a, to a later part of your book that I found very fascinating. Uh, you noticed something that I've also noticed over the last few years, which is how the intelligent design movement has borrowed the rhetoric, rhetoric of relativism from certain factions of the academic left. And you drew some parallels with Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind, which is a book that had a big influence on me 20 years ago. Uh, give my listeners some background on, on what it was your argument in this regard. Well, first of all, let, let, let's, let's put a little context here for the Alan Bloom book that you talk about. Um, Alan Bloom was a conservative humanities scholar, and a great one, at the University of Chicago. Um, he became distressed in the 60s and early 70s about the state of the humanities in the American Revolution, in the American University, excuse me. And the reason he became distressed was, in, in effect, the fruits of what happened in the 60s and 70s. In other words, the coming to fruition of the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, also the movement of women and minorities into mainstream culture and so forth. Now, he would say he wasn't really depressed about that, but here's what bothered him. The whole idea of multi multiculturalism at the university, he thought, was leading to a kind of cultural relativism. And as he put it, the worst thing now, this is 30 years ago, he said the worst thing now that anyone can do within academia is actually to come to a conclusion about anything. Because what everyone is required to do, he said, is have their minds so open, that's why his book was called The Closing of the American Mind, so open that in fact they are closed. And what he meant by that sort of paradoxical statement is that if you're open to everything and you refuse to apply reason to judge things, if you simply say, well, yes, Shakespeare was a great writer, but we really can't judge anyone, uh, so maybe Mike Hammer was just as good, or for that matter, maybe the, the, uh, those who tell tales among the Australian Aborigines are their Shakespeare's, and we have no right to judge one over the other. He said if you do that, then basically you're denying the, pr the critical power of human reason. And the university, if the university is about anything, it's the, about the ability to expose young minds to ideas and then show them how to use their wits, their intellects, and human reasons to come to inform decisions about things. And he was afraid that wasn't happening anymore at the university because of this argument that all ideas are equal. Now, I read Bloom's book at the beginning of my career as a college professor, and I figured, well, I'm in the sciences, so this doesn't really apply to me. And actually, if you reread Bloom's book today, he'll tell you that this plague of relativism hasn't infected the sciences, he said. And the reason for that is the scientists have this, sciences have this wonderful objective criteria. Um, and, you know, they do experiments and they rule things out, and the humanities don't have a blessing of that. Well, when I started to read 
the initial things that came out from the intelligent design movement about a decade ago, they kept reminding me of something. And the more that I read of them, the more I realized, you know what? They are trying to do to the sciences what Bloom thought the academic left was trying to do to the humanities, which is to say, yes, there is a dominant idea, a dominant paradigm. It's called evolution. But we have a paradigm, too. That paradigm is called intelligent design. It's just as good as yours, and you should act as though both of these ideas are equal, give them equal status, teach them in the school side by side, and let students make up their own minds. It, it, and it's remarkable. And, and every now and then, someone will say, well, wait a minute now. You're saying the strategy that the ID movement is following comes from the academic left, not the right, but the left. How did that happen? And my answer to that, it might be, it might be flippant, but, but I don't think it's inaccurate. Um, the originator of the intelligent design strategy, a strategy that's called the wedge strategy, everyone agrees, was Philip Johnson, a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley. Where better to absorb the lingo and the strategy and the approach of the academic left than being a professor at Berkeley? And I think Johnson learned his lessons on how to fight within academia perfectly, and that's the basis of the ID movement. And I think you're absolutely right about that. One of the, the strangest parts of the Dover trial to me, and, and this is, it fits perfectly with what you just said, was the testimony of Steve Fuller, who was a philosopher of science, uh, was an expert witness for the school board. And his argument is a perfect example of what you're talking about. It was basically rhetoric borrowed from the postmodernist left and applied in defense of an idea being advocated by the religious right. He argued that fringe ideas in science are being suppressed by an academic and intellectual elite and that ID should be put into science classes in order to help the ID movement recruit new adherents who might later help to make it a theory that explains something, which he admitted it does not now do. But of course the history of science shows that there were lots of ideas that were initially rejected and even scorned that later became well accepted and dominant. In, in none of those cases, whether it's Big Bang cosmology or, or Continental Drift with Alfred Wegener, in none of those cases, after that initial rejection, did, did they start hiring public relations firms, um, you know, trying to get Congress to, you know, to, to pass amendments, trying to get school boards to put their ideas into, into uh, science classrooms. They just got to work and did the hard work of science, right? That's right. No, I think that's absolutely true. And, and let, me, let me use an example that illustrates exactly what I mean. Um, th there is a, a very highly respected virologist, who's also at Berkeley, by the way, named Peter Duesberg. And Duesberg was in a very small minority of virologists and biochemists who, who argued that HIV was not the cause of AIDS. Now, I think Duesberg was wrong. Most people in the AIDS field think he was wrong and continues to be wrong. Duesberg argued mightily that AIDS was caused by other things and so forth. So it's very much a fringe view. Nonetheless, he was still able to publish these arguments in journals like Science and Nature, went to academic conferences, tried to convince his colleagues. And you know what else he did? He did research. And he tried very hard to set up experiments that would show that HIV was not the cause of AIDS. Now, most people today would say he failed. And in fact, the very successes of the kinds of antiviral therapy that are prolonging the lives of AIDS patients today are predicated on the notion that HIV really is the cause of AIDS. So we're quite confident that Duesberg was wrong about this. But here's why I respect Duesberg in a way I don't respect intelligent design people. He wasn't running to school boards and state legislatures and curriculum committees saying, because I have this view, you ought to teach it. He was in the laboratory. He was trying to do studies to produce the evidence that would convince the rest of the scientific community. And right or wrong, that's how authentic science is done. But that point seems to have completely missed the intelligent design crowd. As I said before, they'd rather do politics and public relations than roll up their sleeves and do an experiment. Well, one of the points that you make in your book is that scientists are, are really the ultimate pragmatists. G give them something that works. Give them something that actually functions as an explanation, and they will eagerly grab a hold of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm the, um, there was, uh, j I mean, just to give you an example, um, I was fortunate enough in my first year of teaching at the university where I am now to have a very bright, inquisitive student in my cell biology class. His name was Craig. Um, Craig went on to grad school. I lost track of him for a few years. Um, and then all of a sudden he resurfaced, and I started reading his papers, and I couldn't believe what he had gotten into. There were some very strange experiments, the first ones which were, uh, were done in plants, in which investigators added a certain amount of uh, an RNA 
into a plant, plant or plant cell that should have had an effect. And in fact, what happened was the opposite effect, and it was very, very puzzling. Um, no one knew what to make of it. A lot of people said, well, you know, it's plants, who cares? Or um, it's petunias, that's the, the species where it first happened. And, but other people were puzzled by it. And Craig and a friend of his named Andrew Fire were two of the people who got interested in this. They were able to show that the same thing occurs in animals. They were experimenting with a worm. And then they came up with a testable explanation for how this process worked. Today, we call that explanation RNA interference. And Craig Mello and Andrew Fire in 2007 won the Nobel Prize in medicine or physiology for taking this very weird phenomenon, um, suddenly proposing a testable explanation and showing that it worked. And what that shows, among other things, is that even explanations that people think, you know, what's the point of this? This is not interesting. If that dog will hunt, as you say, if it works, and that working is something you can demonstrate to the rest of the scientific community, they will jump on your bandwagon immediately because, as you say, scientists are the ultimate pragmatists. And if the ID guys were right, you know, if they really had a, a legitimate argument, if they did the experiments, produced the results, you know what? I'd be writing ID into the textbooks myself without any prodding from anybody else. But the fact is they just haven't done that. Um, one more change of subject here, and I want to put this in the context of uh, uh, this battle in the context of, of politics and religion. One of the things that you point out in your book, and I, I've been saying this myself for years, is that the validity of a scientific theory has nothing at all to do with whatever political or religious beliefs its adherents might hold. And I think it's important to make the point that you make in the book, that evolution is just a scientific theory, and that scientific theories are not political in nature. You can accept evolution and hold any other political or philosophical idea imaginable. You can accept evolution and to be a conservative or a liberal, a socialist or a libertarian, an atheist or a Christian, a, a Jew or a Hindu, and so forth. Um, the ID movement likes to rant and rave about naturalism, but the point that, that I keep making that I see you making in the book is that evolution is really no more naturalistic than any other theory in science. It's naturalistic in precisely the same sense that every other theory in science, from the Big Bang to the germ theory of disease, is naturalistic. And, and, and just like you can accept the germ theory of disease and be a Christian or an atheist, the same is true of evolution, right? Oh, indeed. And, you know, I'm, I've heard people say to me, well, you know, if God didn't correctly, uh, sorry, if God did not directly create species, then why should I believe in him? And, you know, my answer is, you know, 2,000 years ago, People thought that God made the tides come in and out. We now know this simply happens because of the combined gravitation of the sun, the moon, and the earth. Does that diminish your religious faith? Of course not. Um, some people will get down on their knees and pray for rain um, because they think the Lord can move the weather. Well, maybe he can't. But does that mean meteorologists are a threat to your faith because they predict the weather based on physical means? And the answer is, of course not. Um, if, if you are a spiritual person... You believe that God is the ultimate author of all things natural. Evolution is a natural process, and therefore that means he's the author of that process as well. If you're not a person of faith, you simply think that nature exists on its own, and you can still study that natural process in exactly the same way. And that's one of the reasons. Um, occasionally scientists will get in, in, involved in arguments about religion. Um, but it's one of the reasons when you actually look at the practice of science, we simply don't pay any attention to the religious beliefs of each other, because they just don't matter. Um, if I'm running a gel, uh, sequencing the stretch of DNA, or collaborating with a scientist somewhere else, it doesn't matter to me if he's an agnostic, an atheist, a Jew, or a Hindu, and it doesn't matter to him that I'm a Roman Catholic. It's irrelevant, because science stands on its own. It's the closest thing. Science is the closest thing we have on this planet to a universal culture, and I think that's valuable and that's worth protecting. I took a lot of heat a couple of years ago for writing an article where I said that, that there were two different groups of people you know, who are active in defending evolution. One group is working to, to defend science education against the attacks of creationists, and the other group is trying to rid the planet of religion. And while I'm a non-believer myself, I am firmly in that first group, and I, I think that Christians like you who accept evolution and defend it are on my side because I'm not in a battle to destroy religion. I'm in a battle to prevent creationism from getting into science classrooms. And I think that, that, that you and, and others like you, like Francis Collins, uh, Keith Miller, uh, my friend Howard Van Til, are, are great allies in this battle. You can get listened to by an audience that will tune me out completely. Uh, and, and has that been your experience? Well, I think it is for the most part. Although, naturally, of course, 
Um, I get people challenging the sincerity of my religious beliefs, um, which, always, uh, which always makes my daughters laugh. Um, they once saw someone saying, uh, an article saying that Ken Miller's not a real Christian. And uh, my, one of my daughters moaned, saying, yeah, that's why he drags us to church every Sunday. That's why he says grace before meal every night and, and all that other sort of stuff. But the, the, the reality is, and, and I think you're right about those two groups, um, it, 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 I, I worry, I, I really do, that many of my scientific colleagues see, think that the problem with intelligent design is that it basically leads to religious faith. And that's the worst thing that could happen. Um, the real problem with intelligent design is not whether it strengthens or weakens the idea of religion. The real problem with intelligent design is it's bad science. And I think anyone who prizes scientific reason ought to be against it, regardless of their religious point of view. And you're absolutely right. Um, if we start demanding a litmus test of people in the scientific community that you must be a skeptic or you must be an agnostic, to be a legitimate scientist, uh, first of all, we're going to do terrible disservice to the scientific community. We're going to lose public support. And you know what else we're going to do? We're going to fly in the face of history. And what, what do I mean by that? Gregor Mendel, the founder of the modern science of genetics, was a Catholic priest. Isaac Newton was a faithful Christian. George Lemaitre, the physicist who first worked out the mathematics of the Big Bang, was a priest. So it turns out the notion that one cannot do legitimate reason, important, rational science, if you're a person of faith, is simple nonsense, and the history of science proves that. And I think, ultimately, we have to realize, yes, there are religious questions that divide all of us, but the one thing that is the pearl of great price that we all have to stand for is scientific reason. And I think it's important to this country's future. We've got about one minute left. Isn't it, uh, so give me a brief answer to this, isn't it really important, therefore, to separate scientific theories from any philosophical inferences we might draw from them? Well, I think you certainly have to separate science from the philosophical inferences we draw, as you say. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't make the philosophical inferences. Science is important in part because it changes our own view of the world around us. It enriches what we understand about nature. And I think it's only human once that view becomes more and more enriched by scientific discovery, to sit back and say, now, what does this mean? How should we order our lives? What does this mean about whether or not there's a God? So I think science can drive that. But we ought not to pretend that our philosophical thoughts, even if they're informed by science, are scientific themselves. Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's very, very important to, to make a separation there. And, and, and those, those speculations are very important and they're very interesting, but they're not part of science itself. Indeed. That's, that doesn't mean that those questions are not important and not worth answering. It simply means it's often beyond the purview of science to be able to answer them. Right. Well, uh, Ken Miller, thank you very much uh, for being here and, and taking your time, and we look forward to uh, maybe talking to you again at a later date. And it was a great pleasure. Happy to talk with you anytime. All right. Well, happy Darwin Day, everybody. You guys gonna go to the pub with me? Uh, if I can celebrate make it. some. Uh, I will. Well, okay, cool. Yeah, Maybe so. we can see Luke's social life get naturally selected. Yeah, there you go. It's a pathway to extinction, actually. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's all, all right. for this week. Thanks for listening. Happy Darwin Day, everybody. Although I can I just say in my defense, I'm as social as Darwin was. <laughs> uh, good point. Very good. He had a all mirror right. installed in his office, so if he could see anyone coming up the pathway uh, to his house, and yeah. then he would then invent excuses. I, as I that saw means. that in, in the uh, PBS video, which I, I highly recommend. Well, then you get the what would Darwin do prop of the day. <laughs> yes. Have a good week, everyone. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.